The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Scoring Comprehensive Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus Management Goals, Examining the Multifaceted Effects of GLP-1 Receptor Agonists. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash ZKJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, this is Dr. John Buse from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill. In today's presentation, I'll, I'll discuss why GLP-1 receptor agonists have risen to the top of the treatment hierarchy for type 2 diabetes, how the agents within the class differ from one another, how to identify the patients who will benefit the most from these multifaceted agents, and what you need to tell patients to ensure they'll succeed with them. You'll then have the opportunity to apply the latest evidence to some patient cases through a series of challenge questions. So let's get into the meat of the matter. As you know, diabetes is very common. In 2022, 37.3 million people had diabetes. That was 11.3% of the population. Uh, the majority are diagnosed, but still 23% of those living with diabetes are undiagnosed. Prediabetes is a bigger problem. 96 million people, uh, 18 and older, have prediabetes, which is 38% of the adult U.S. population. And over the age of 65, it's nearly 50% of the population has prediabetes. But how do we screen for uh, diabetes uh, in people at risk? So the new recommendations is to screen everyone over the age of 35 who has overweight or obesity and screen at younger ages in populations at high risk, like people with a family history of diabetes uh, and uh, virtually all ethnic and racial minority groups. The recommendation is to repeat the testing at least every three years if the results are normal. If someone falls in the prediabetes range, the recommendations are to screen at least every year. Um, but in the process, uh, we will detect people with unrecognized diabetes. There are three approved screening tests. The fasting glucose test, which requires at least eight hours of fasting, preferably in the morning. Uh, the two-hour glucose tolerance test, uh, that requires at least three days of a high-carbohydrate diet, uh, at least 200 grams per day of carbohydrates as preparation for the test, and then an overnight fast, and then consuming 75 grams of oral glucose uh, and uh, measuring a glucose uh, level two hours later. So much, mo much more cumbersome. And then the A1C test, which is the easiest test by far, uh, the preferable test in many settings, uh, mostly because uh, particularly in these younger patients uh, with regards to screening for diabetes, they're often coming to medical attention because of some intercurrent event. Um, they twisted their ankle uh, playing softball uh, and they're being seen uh, in an urgent care facility. That's a great time to screen. I don't know when uh, a young patient who might be at high risk uh, might show up again in a doctor's office. Uh, and the A1C test allows you to screen people independent of their fasting status uh, and also independent of any acute or intercurrent illnesses. Now, 
Diabetes is associated with two different kinds of complications. We have macrovascular complications and then microvascular complications. On the left are the macrovascular complications, coronary heart disease, heart failure, peripheral arterial disease, uh, and stroke. And each of these occur in on the order of 10 to 20 percent uh, of people with diabetes. Uh, there are many more details that are available on this beautiful slide, uh, which you can peruse at your, uh, at your leisure. On the right is uh, the microvascular complications, and that's historically thought of as retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy. And as you can see, each of these is uh, present in closer to 30 to 60 to 70 percent uh, of the population, uh, with diabetes, that's a bit dependent on how long the population has had diabetes and what their level of glycemic control is. So both with regards to the macrovascular complications and the microvascular complications, there are multiple opportunities to screen for early manifestations, intervene specifically to reduce the risk of progression, uh, and certainly uh, most people with diabetes with good access to care should not experience disabling complications from, uh, uh, from diabetes. Why am I so enthusiastic about uh, uh, detecting diabetes by screening? I, I think it's really this kind of data. There is randomized controlled uh, data that suggests that this observational data is true, uh, but I'll run you through this relatively complicated slide. On the left are the microvascular complications in the middle, macrovascular complications, and to the right, mortality. Uh, and what we see as we go from the bottom of the slide to the top of the slide is differences in what they call the early exposure period. Uh, so from zero to one year of exposure, all the way at the top of the slide to up to seven years uh, of exposure. And what you see with the different colored dots is different levels of hemoglobin A1C. Uh, uh, hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 to 7% uh, 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 with the circles, uh, hemoglobin A1C of 7 to 8% with the squares, a hemoglobin A1C of uh, 8 to 9% uh, with the triangles, and a hemoglobin A1C over 9% uh, uh, with the uh, green diamonds. Uh, and so what you see is you go uh, from the bottom of the slide to the top of the slide that with higher levels of hemoglobin A1C, there's an increased hazard ratio uh, for, in the left column, microvascular disease, in the middle, macrovascular disease, and to the right, mortality. Um, and uh, um, so the conclusion from the authors uh, of this paper was among patients with newly diagnosed diabetes and 10 years of survival, hemoglobin A1C levels greater than 6.5% for the first year after diagnosis were associated with worse outcomes. Therefore, immediate intensive treatment for newly diagnosed patients may be necessary to avoid irremediable long-term risk of diabetes complications and mortality. So early glycemic control matters, and detecting people by screening gives you the best opportunity to sort of nip the process of developing complications to nip it in the bud. 
So now we turn to the most recent American Diabetes Association and European Association for the Study of Diabetes uh, joint so-called uh, statement uh, regarding the management of hyperglycemia and type 2 diabetes. And the thing that's changed in this most recent guidance uh, from these two uh, diabetes uh, uh, organizations um, are, uh, first of all, that we now uh, recommend simultaneous and equal emphasis on addressing the four components of care namely the medications for glycemic management, weight management, cardiovascular risk management, and in those at high risk or with prevalent cardiorenal disease, cardiorenal protection through the choice of glucose-lowering medications. So let's talk about medications for glycemic management. The top-line recommendation is to choose approaches that provide the efficacy to achieve goals. What do we mean by that? So if you have a patient with a hemoglobin A1C of 9% that you believe should get to an A1C level of, let's say, less than 7% based on their age and other comorbidities, you're looking for an agent that's going to be able to lower the A1C from 9% to less than 7%, or you need something that's going to be able to lower A1C by at least 2%. And what could you use to pick an agent? Well, what we suggest is that it could be metformin or one or more agents, including combination therapy, that provide adequate efficacy to achieve and maintain the treatment goals. Um, so in the example that I gave you a moment ago, you wouldn't want to pick uh, a single agent to get a greater than 2% lowering of A1C um, as, a, as a sort of expectation, um, certainly uh, not, uh, you know, a, a DPP-4 inhibitor or uh, metformin monotherapy. That's very unlikely to occur. You might pick a combination um, or you might pick uh, one of the very high efficacy uh, glycemic strategies that we'll talk about in a moment. And the third point from this slide is to consider the avoidance of hypoglycemia as a priority in high-risk individuals. And those high-risk individuals would be people who are at high risk for developing hypoglycemia, uh, you know, people who are very physically active or have erratic schedules, uh, but also people who might have high risk as a result of hypoglycemia, like the frail elderly or people uh, that do construction work or law enforcement work. And for some patients, these high-efficacy approaches may include the GLP-1 receptor agonists as we'll talk about in a moment. The second component of care is achieving and maintaining weight management goals. The critical aspect of this is to set the individualized weight management goal and to pursue them with the kind of vigor that you might pursue in managing the glycemia in the setting of type 2 diabetes. And specifically, when choosing glucose-lowering therapies, consider regimens with high to very high dual glucose and weight efficacy. And with regards to these medications for weight loss, and particularly those with dual glucose and weight efficacy, that might include the GLP-1 receptor agonists as well. Uh, third, uh, let's consider the cardiorenal protection based on the choice of glucose-lowering medications 
in people at high risk for cardiorenal disease. The recommendation is for patients with chronic kidney disease uh, defined as an estimated GFR of less than 60 or a urine albumin to creatinine ratio of greater than 30. Uh, in, in those patients, it's recommended that they be on a maximally tolerated dose of an ACE inhibitor or ARB and preferably use an SGLT2 inhibitor with primary evidence for reducing uh, chronic kidney disease progression. If that is not tolerated or contraindicated, the recommendation is to use a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit. And if additional cardiorenal risk reduction or glycemic control is needed, to consider combinations of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. In patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or at high risk, and high risk here is defined as people basically uh, over the age of 55 uh, with, uh, with risk factors or uh, perhaps people a little bit younger with multiple risk factors, the recommendation um, is uh, to use either a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit or an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit. And if additional cardiorenal risk reduction is required or additional glycemic control needed, uh, consider a combination of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. And the setting of heart failure, whether heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or a reduced ejection fraction, to use an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven heart failure benefit uh, in this population. And then lastly, with regards to the positioning of GLP-1 receptor agonists here, uh, the sweet spot uh, is really the role of GLP-1 receptor agonists in preventing uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease uh, and uh, the mechanisms of which we'll talk about uh, in a moment. When necessary in the setting of chronic kidney disease or arguably in heart failure as well, uh, if additional glucose lowering uh, is needed, uh, there is some suggested benefit of the GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, in those settings as well. But what makes the management of diabetes challenging is that we have to do all of this at the same time. Pick glycemic lowering strategies with adequate efficacy and uh, considering using agents that provide for a meaningful reduction of both glucose and weight uh, and to establish weight management goals and pursue those targets with equal vigor to our pursuit of glycemic targets and cardiovascular risk factor management. And then finally, the use of these potentially life-saving therapies, GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors in patients uh, with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, or heart failure, uh, or frankly, in people uh, at high risk of those uh, complications. So what's the benefit of the GLP-1 receptor agonists in type 2 diabetes? They have very high efficacy. In head-to-head -head trials, even against uh, multiple daily injections of insulin, basal bolus insulin therapy, uh, the high-efficacy GLP-1 receptor agonists, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, like terzepatide uh, and uh, semaglutide, uh, are equivalent uh, or greater in efficacy than everything um, including insulin. They are arguably the most effective weight loss uh, drugs that are available uh, currently, and we'll talk about that more in a second. 
Uh, they reduce systolic blood pressure in a meaningful way. Uh, they have very low intrinsic risk of hypoglycemia. They can amplify the hypoglycemic effects of sulfonylureas and insulin. Uh, so often as we're adding these GLP-1 receptor agonists, we're reducing or eliminating the use of those agents. Because they have low intrinsic risk of hypoglycemia, there's no need for uh, uh, routine blood glucose monitoring. And for most, when you take it uh, is, uh, is unimportant. Uh, it's only that people uh, develop strategies to uh, take their medications uh, on a regular basis. They have very broad activity. Uh, we've mentioned already the glycemic efficacy, uh, but more exciting is the effects to uh, protect the heart, protect the brain, and protect the kidney. Uh, and uh, the mechanisms by which this is accomplished is uncertain, uh, but there are many mechanistic pathways that are potentially uh, contributing. I think the smart money or the, the most uh, guesses uh, are on anti-inflammatory pathways. Uh, personally, I think there may be something more uh, specific in the sort of vascular biology uh, that uh, is promoted by GLP-1 receptor agonists, uh, including promoting uh, uh, plaque stability uh, and endothelial function. But in any case, uh, the GLP-1 molecule and these GLP-1 receptor agonists have very broad effects um, that seem to be uh, beneficial uh, in general. Now, there are uh, eight GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, that are currently marketed uh, in the United States. Uh, we have Exenatide uh, as a twice-a-day formulation, the original product that was released, I believe it was in 2005. We have daily products, including an oral version of semaglutide. Uh, we have daily injected products, loraglutide and lixicenatide. And then we have three weekly products, uh, exenatide in the once-weekly formulation, dulaglutide, and semaglutide. And you can see the brand names there. Um, we also have something that is technically a GLP-1 receptor agonist, but more specifically, it's a GIP and GLP-1 uh, receptor agonist. It's a single molecule uh, that has activity at, at both ends of the molecule, uh, both on the GLP-1 receptor and the GIP receptor. So it's viewed as a separate class, but we are including discussion here uh, because it does have GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, activity. And that's the, the new kid on the block, terzepatide. And then we do have fixed ratio combinations of insulin and GLP-1 receptor agonists in the form of, uh, of uh, insulin degladec uh, when uh, loraglutide is combined uh, with uh, insulin degladec uh, and uh, when lixicenatide is combined uh, with insulin glargine. Now, this is a, a visualization of the A1C reduction uh, by the various GLP-1 receptor agonists generally in the setting of being added to one or two oral agents. Um, and you can see that the greatest efficacy to date has been uh, demonstrated with this new agent, uh, terzepatide, the dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist. Uh, semaglutide uh, is generally associated uh, with uh, similar uh, uh, A1C reduction, 
uh, liraglutide uh, and dulaglutide uh, just a, a, a bit lower, uh, and then uh, the other agents uh, still providing for important hemoglobin A1C reductions uh, as uh, effective or uh, more effective than virtually uh, all the other antihyperglycemic agents. Uh, but the A1C reduction with high-dose terzepatide um, is truly uh, awe-inspiring with A1C reductions uh, on the order of 2 to 2.5%, two and the majority of patients achieving hemoglobin A1Cs uh, even uh, less than 6%. This is a look at the mean weight loss after 24 to 68 weeks uh, as uh, expressed in kilograms. Uh, again, similar kind of analysis in patients with type 2 diabetes on one or two oral agents. Uh, again, terzepatide uh, in its highest dose associated with uh, nearly 15% reduction uh, in weight uh, overall. Uh, semaglutide providing for more like a 10% reduction in weight. Uh, and then the other agents uh, falling uh, slightly uh, behind in that regard. But again, even the agents with the least efficacy uh, in this space are generally agents associated with the most efficacy with regards to antihyperglycemic therapies uh, for, uh, for weight reduction. Um, so all the GLP-1 receptor agonists provide for uh, meaningful weight reduction, um, terzepatide and semaglutide uh, being the most effective and associated with uh, uh, quite impressive weight reduction in the setting of diabetes management. To summarize, uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with excellent improvement in hemoglobin A1c, uh, moderate weight loss up to 15% over 6 to 12 months. And when you look at the literature, uh, you'll see some higher numbers. Remember, in general, when, uh, when GLP-1 receptor agonists are used for managing obesity, in the absence of diabetes, uh, we, we tend to see higher numbers. The only agents that are approved today uh, are semaglutide and liraglutide uh, from this class for obesity management in the absence of diabetes. Uh, terzepatide uh, uh, will be submitted to the FDA for an obesity indication in the near future. They're also associated with modest improvements in blood pressure, no increased uh, risk of hypoglycemia. The adverse events are largely gastrointestinal. And the safety considerations or things that we should be discussing with patients include the possibility of increased gallbladder events, the possibility of acute renal failure related to nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration, uh, the possibility of pancreatitis, uh, uh, the, po the possibility of medullary thyroid cancer, uh, which is a uh, uh, warning within the package insert. So let's take a comparative look at the GLP-1 receptor agonist. Uh, Joshua, his BMI is over 32. He's uh, uh, 5'10 and weighs 235 pounds. His hemoglobin A1C is 7.3% and blood pressure 142 over 87. His lipid panel uh, shows that his LDL is above target and his HDL uh, is uh, borderline. He has a past history of prediabetes, and clearly uh, uh, um, he's obese today, but was previously recognized uh, as only being overweight. He's not on any medications. 
Uh, he works as an electrician, uh, spends a lot of hours on the job. He's divorced, uh, lives alone, and is generally uh, eating at fast food restaurants uh, between clients and on his way home. Uh, at the previous physical 14 months ago, his BMI uh, was 29.5, so just at the borderline of obesity. His A1C was 6.3%. His blood pressure was 135 over 72, uh, and his total cholesterol was 185. So he's had a sort of decline in his uh, in his numbers uh, with uh, weight gain, uh, and now. Uh, a suggestion, at least, of uh, frank diabetes with a hemoglobin A1C of 7.3% uh, and hypertension and hypercholesterolemia. Let's talk more about the GLP-1 receptor agonists in detail uh, because they're not all exactly alike. With regards to the pharmacokinetics, um, we have short-acting agents, exenatide and lixisenatide, half-lives on the order of two hours. And then long-acting agents, exenatide once weekly, liraglutide, semaglutide, dulaglutide, and terzepatide. And these have half-lives adequate so that they cover 24 hours a day uh, when administered um, as uh, prescribed. Uh, so liraglutide is once a day. The other agents on the list are once a week. With regards to structure, uh, we have exenin-4-based structures. Uh, these are the most, um, uh, the, the highest affinity uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, so exenatide and lixisenatide. And then uh, we have the GLP-1-based human structure uh, for liraglutide, semaglutide, and dulaglutide. Um, and then the GIP and GLP-1 human amino acid sequence-based uh, terzepatide. The first dual uh, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist. The issue with the Xendin-4 based um, structures is because it is a xenopeptide. Uh, there is a higher risk of developing antibodies, and in pretty rare cases, a percent or so of patients, uh, these antibodies can actually sort of block the activity of the drug. Um, with regards to size, we have smaller agents and then we have bigger agents. The bigger agents are generally the result of what we call fusion peptides. So dulaglutide um, is a GLP-1 receptor uh, um, um, analog that's been fused to an antibody uh, uh, structure, uh, creating a large molecule and this it provides for advantages with regards to duration of action, but may explain why dulaglutide, though highly effective as a glucose-lowering agent, isn't quite as effective as one might expect with regards to weight loss. So we think the smaller agents uh, do uh, are able to better get into the areas of the brain where they affect satiety uh, and appetite, and therefore uh, are able to promote weight loss. And then we have one agent that has been co-formulated with a carrier molecule, enabling us to provide semaglutide in this oral formulation uh, as a once-a-day pill. Now, the big excitement around the GLP-1 receptor agonists in managing type 2 diabetes 
started with glycemic efficacy and weight loss, uh, but really came to prominence with the publication of the LEADER trial, uh, the first of the GLP-1 receptor agonist trials that demonstrated cardiovascular risk reduction with liraglutide. Now there are many such studies, which we'll go through in some detail, and even meta-analyses uh, to show not only a reduction in the primary cardiovascular endpoint, uh, heart attack, stroke, or cardiovascular death, but then in each of the components, cardiovascular death, fatal and non-fatal MI, fatal and non-fatal stroke, but also in all-cause mortality, in hospital admissions for heart failure, and even in the composite kidney outcomes that include macroalbuminuria, we've shown a very similar and meaningful on the order of uh, 10 to 20% reduction uh, in those uh, endpoints. With numbers needed to treat, for instance, for macroalbuminuria as 47 cases treated uh, for three years to prevent uh, one event, 65 uh, for the uh, MACE uh, 3 endpoint, and all of those being statistically significant. The worsening of kidney function, generally a doubling of the serum creatinine, a reduction in an estimated glomerular filtration rate of at least 40%, um, or, uh, or uh, kidney death or the need for uh, uh, dialysis uh, or transplantation, that didn't quite reach statistical significance uh, but uh, certainly a suggestive trend uh, in that regard. So these cardiovascular outcome trials in general have demonstrated very broad-based positive benefits beyond glucose uh, and weight lowering. To take a deeper dive on the uh, three-point MACE endpoint, uh, heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death, uh, we see that uh, virtually all the trials land to the left of the center line, uh, indicating a trend for benefit. Uh, the only uh, agents that had uh, demonstrated benefit uh, that was included in the package insert of the drug uh, were liraglutide, semaglutide, and dulaglutide. Albaglutide and epiglenotide had very uh, uh, impressive results. Um, but aren't currently marketed, and that's the reason why we haven't highlighted it here. Uh, but a consistent effect across trials, except for uh, with lixisenatide uh, for the three-point MACE. Lixisenatide is administered once a day, but only has a half-life of about two to three hours, and, and probably just doesn't provide for the 24-hour-a-day, uh, the seven-day-a-week coverage uh, that may be necessary for uh, cardiovascular risk reduction. Uh, with regards to cardiovascular death, uh, we see a similar pattern where the vast majority of trials uh, land on the left. Uh, the only agents that have statistically significant uh, uh, results here, liraglutide in the LEADER trial and oral semaglutide in Pioneer 6. Um, but in the meta-analysis, uh, the overall uh, hazard ratio is 0.87 indicating a 13% reduction in the risk of cardiovascular death uh, with GLP-1 receptor agonists. And then with regards to stroke outcomes, again, we see that most of the dots land to the left of the line. Uh, the meta-analysis suggests a hazard ratio of 0.83, or a 17% reduction in the risk of stroke 
uh, the only uh, only study with an individually statistically significant result is uh, dulaglutide in the rewind trial. Um, but in the meta-analysis, a lot of interest uh, in the potential of GLP-1 receptor agonists to reduce the risk of both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. And then with regards to kidney outcomes, on the top of the slide, the composite kidney outcome, including micro, uh, macroalbuminuria, and we see again uh, all the dots landing to the left, the, um, the um, meta-analysis suggesting a 21% reduction in risk. Uh, and then on the bottom of the slide, uh, the, the restricted renal endpoint looking only at kidney function, uh, doubling of serum creatinine, 40% decline in EGFR, kidney replacement therapy or death during, uh, uh, due to kidney disease. Uh, and you can see uh, a bit more heterogeneity, uh, but uh, at the bottom line, uh, the hazard ratio overall 0.86, uh, suggesting uh, a benefit, uh, but uh, with the uh, variance in the hazard ratio going up to 1.02, so not a statistically significant result uh, in this meta-analysis. There are a number of new areas where GLP-1 receptor agonists are being evaluated, including in the setting of non-alcoholic fatty liter liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Um, and we call this one out largely because uh, it is mentioned in the ADA-EESD management of hyperglycemia statement uh, that we referred to earlier. Um, and, you know, basically the bottom line is uh, that these GLP-1 receptor agonists, perhaps through you know, uh, through the GLP-1 receptor, or perhaps largely mediated by weight loss, uh, have been evaluated in people with fatty liver disease and seem to have very favorable effects on liver fat content, insulin resistance, uh, and body mass. Though none of the GLP-1 receptor agonists have gotten an FDA indication for the treatment of fatty liver disease, uh, there are very promising results uh, that will be evaluated further in ongoing clinical trials. So the other area where these meta-analyses are exceptionally useful is looking at safety findings, uh, because there have been concerns uh, that, you know, these very potent glucose-lowering agents might be associated with severe hypoglycemia. In one of the studies, uh, there was an increased risk of uh, retinopathy adverse events, uh, and uh, there has been a concern since the early days uh, with, uh, with exenatide about the possibility of pancreatitis uh, being increased in, with GLP-1 receptor agonists as well as pancreatic cancer, uh, which is thought of as a, a sort of end-stage manifestation of chronic pancreatic uh, uh, inflammation um, in, um, in patients at risk. Uh, but you can see from these clinical trials involving tens of thousands of patients and average follow-up on the order of three years, that there's no increased risk of severe hypoglycemia and statistically no increased risk of retinopathy, pancreatitis, or pancreatic cancer uh, across, uh, uh, across these multiple uh, cardiovascular outcome trials. So let's get back to Joshua. He's a 45-year-old gentleman. Uh, remember, he gained weight over the last 14 months when we saw him last. Uh, his BMI is now 32, his A1C 7.3%, his LDL uh, is too high. Uh, what do we need to do for him? 
he needs uh, at least a 0.3% and probably closer to 1% reduction in A1C to get down to less than 6.5%, which might be a reasonable uh, goal for a young guy uh, with new onset diabetes. He needs at least a 10 millimeter of mercury reduction in his blood pressure. He needs at least a uh, 30% lowering of his LDL cholesterol to get at least less than 100. Uh, And he needs to lose at least 5% body weight to have a meaningful effect on glycemic management. But arguably with a 10 or 15% lowering, uh, he might even have remission of his diabetes. Um, And then because he's an electrician and uh, uh, and uh, works a lot of hours, it might be ideal for him not to have uh, uh, you know, his life uh, interrupted by hypoglycemic events or extra trips to the bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he doesn't have any kidney disease. He doesn't have any atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, stroke, or uh, or, uh, or neuropathy. So there, there isn't a particular... Uh, a particular indication for using uh, any agent uh, specifically. So let's uh, talk about some more of the details regarding uh, patient-centered diabetes care with GLP-1 receptor agonists. So uh, I want to introduce you to Linda. She's 66 years old. Um, Her BMI is 36. Her A1C is 7.7. Her LDL uh, is less than 100, uh, but perhaps not as low as we'd like, ideally. He, she does have some chronic kidney disease uh, with an EGFR of 48, so stage uh, 3A, and a urine albumin to creatinine ratio that's normal, at least on uh, uh, an ACE inhibitor as a, a background therapy. She has a past history of obesity, type 2 diabetes for eight years, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, atrial fibrillation, and chronic kidney disease. Um, she's on four drugs for her diabetes, metformin, gliburide, a DPP-4 inhibitor, and SGLT2 inhibitor, uh, uh, two agents for blood pressure, lisinopril, hydrochlorothiazide in a combination, misuvastatin for, uh, for, uh, for her lipids, and a pixaban uh, 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 to uh, manage her uh, embolic risk with the atrial fibrillation. Um, you know, she said something that... Uh, you know, I think would give all of us pause that she has her doubts about her type 2 diabetes uh, medications. Uh, certainly makes me wonder about adherence, how good she is at taking her medications as prescribed every day. Um, she is fearful of needles, um, but, you know, she is concerned about her kidney disease. She doesn't like uh, the, the, the sound of chronic kidney disease uh, in her case. So, you know, I think one of the most important points in uh, the relationship between a doctor and a patient um, is to really establish engagement, help the patient understand that you're really interested in helping them be the best thems that they can be. Um, So early in the course of therapy, I think it's important to establish goals and targets together with the patient. Uh, This is not a a demand uh, from the provider, uh, but an engagement from the patient based on uh, your uh, being able to provide them insight into the role of these various factors on their future health. Um, so these should be personal goals, you know, that 
I'd like to be able to dance at my daughter's wedding in 10 years. Uh, lifestyle goals, diet, physical activity, um, uh, and uh, glucose monitoring. Uh, glycemic goals, uh, A1C, glucose monitoring, uh, weight, blood pressure, LDL, um, uh, and others. And in general, I think it's ideal to write these down uh, and provide a copy to the patient and review them at least annually. Uh, the great thing about that is that uh, that way the patient can help you stay on top of their goals uh, and you can uh, uh, help the patient uh, do the same. In general, the path to successful management of type 2 diabetes is uh, recommended around shared decision-making. The patient is the person who's going to have to uh, do the diabetes care 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of their life. We are like coaches. And then we have some extraordinary coaches available to us in the form of uh, diabetes educators. So the provision of diabetes self-management education and support beyond what the, uh, the uh, provider uh, can do in the regular office setting, you know, with prescription management, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it is really important to make sure that social determinants of health are, uh, are adequately assessed uh, in people that have housing insecurity or difficulty getting back and forth or uh, have difficulty paying for their prescriptions or, uh, you know, are being abused at home. It's going to be really hard to manage diabetes in that setting. Um, so we need to adequately assess those factors and then engage support to address them. And then we have to continuously, at every visit, uh, uh, reassess where people are with regards to their uh, uh, lifestyle and other goals. Uh, we need to help them with regards to adherence and persistence in a uh, engaging and non-judgmental way. Um, and then above all, avoid clinical inertia, meaning if if people aren't achieving goals, uh, it's not a call 911 issue. On the other hand, there are national and global data that suggests that uh, patients and providers uh, delay uh, um, uh, advancing therapy for blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes uh, for 12 to 18 months or longer uh, in patients that are not meeting targets. And, and that's uh, probably too slow a progression of, uh, of therapy. And we should personalize our diabetes care. Uh, and what we mean by that uh, is um, to provide a personal touch uh, to make sure that, uh, that uh, you really understand the patient and uh, where they live. Uh, at least having a mention at every visit on uh, improving lifestyle being an essential element of all glycemic management, uh, recognizing that in the absence of, uh, of lifestyle uh, attention, there is no adequate uh, medication management uh, program. The essence of the personalized care is the, your, your sort of personal touch and engagement. And uh, there are clear data that empathetic, patient-centered, shared decision-making and support uh, is associated with better outcomes. Teach your patients and do not preach motivate your patients and try not to castigate that everything else of medicine beyond the prescriptions and the devices is essential. How you look them in the eye, the tone of the voice that you use, 
and, and how you explain things. And with regards to the goals of therapy, you know, there is no one uh, solitary goal. In general, the A1C goal is viewed as less than 7% without significant hypoglycemia. Lower A1C goals are likely uh, beneficial and certainly uh, may be acceptable if it can be achieved safely without significant hypoglycemia or other adverse events. Less stringent A1C goals, like less than 8%, are appropriate in people with limited life expectancies or where the harms of treatment are greater than the benefits. Uh, and particularly in the advanced elderly or in people with hypoglycemia, there is specific recommendation to consider de-intensification of therapy uh, in those settings. Older adults uh, who are healthy with few coexisting chronic illnesses and intact cognitive function should have lower targets than 8% um, if you believe that they have a life expectancy of you know more than five, you know certainly if it's more than ten years, uh, but a target in the seven to seven point five uh, range might be um, appropriate. Whereas those that have uh, multiple coexisting illnesses, cognitive impairment, or functional dependence, uh, the higher targets would be reasonable. Um, and in even the most advanced. Uh, 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 elderly patients, uh, we need to be careful not to completely throw in the towel with regards to glycemic control. Above an A1C of 8% and particularly above 9%, patients are going to have more problems with symptoms related to polyuria, polydipsia, uh, risk of acute hyperglycemic decompensation, uh, dehydration, urinary tract infections, slips and falls while people are trying to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so I think in general, you know, an A1C target of less than 8% for all is, you know, is probably reasonable, uh, but certainly extra attention if the A1C is greater than 9%. Now, I think one of the most important uh, uh, papers uh, of the last year uh, was this paper by Ildiko Lingve who proposed that we could think about alternative targets for managing diabetes and uh, suggested that the majority of patients with diabetes could be rethought of as having adiposity-related diabetes, where the major morbidity was obesity. Our focus should be weight-centric. The goal should be greater than 15% weight loss. And this is based on uh, data to suggest that in the sort of 10 to 15-plus uh, percent range, uh, that we have the possibility of having diabetes remission in a substantial proportion of patients. Um, she estimates that around 50% uh, or so of the population have this form of diabetes. And in that setting, we should be considering intensive lifestyle therapy, weight loss drugs, surgery, uh, GLP-1 receptor agonist, SGLT2 inhibitors, and metformin. And the secondary targets beyond weight loss would be glucose, blood pressure, and lipids. In the middle column, she proposes a second group of patients, people with diabetes with cardiovascular disease. And the focus there is on the cardiovascular system. The aim is proven cardioprotection. Uh, again, this is about 25% or so of the population. And here, the diabetes agents to consider are GLP-1 receptor agonists, SGLT2 inhibitors, and perhaps thiazolidinediones. 
And the secondary targets beyond cardiovascular risk protection would be weight, glucose, blood pressure, lipids, and coagulation. And lastly, the minority, uh, about 15 uh, or so percent, would be patients with isolated hyperglycemia, uh, where the focus is really on glucose. The goal should be an A1C of less than 7%, and the primary driver really is beta cell dysfunction. This is functionally type 1 diabetes and very insulin deficient uh, type 2 diabetes. And in that setting, the therapy should be insulin, GLP-1 receptor agonists, you know, even consideration of uh, sulfonylureas. This really changed the way that we thought of things and was a paper that was really a primary driver of our uh, shift in the ADA-ESD guidance that we've talked about a couple of times. The second new area of focus is understanding where people are with regards to their kidneys. Kidney disease is uh, one of the most stubborn complications uh, in diabetes. We have not been able to really fully uh, eliminate it in, uh, in patients with great access to care. Um, and the way we characterize uh, chronic kidney disease is based on GFR and uh, stage from G1 to G5, and then from albuminuria, also in stages from A1 to A3. Um, and you can see here, uh, for instance, in the current case study, uh, she had a albuminuria on the order of 25, and her EGFR, if I remember, was 48. And a uh, check mark has been applied here, puts her in the yellow range, which is moderate uh, uh, chronic kidney disease. Um, the important thing from this kind of analysis is as you go to higher levels of albuminuria and lower levels of EGFR, uh, there's much higher risk of progression to end-stage renal disease over intermediate timeframes. And in particular, in the high, in orange, very high, and extrapolated high uh, um, um, risk uh, chronic kidney disease patients, uh, the recommendation is to seek uh, assistance and consultation with a nephrologist. So with regards to how do we use GLP-1 receptor agonists based on renal status, the important thing to know is that the uh, Exendin-4-based therapies, Exenatide, Lixisenatide, and even Exenatide once weekly, they should not be used in patients with advanced chronic kidney disease because they are cleared renally. Uh, and they can be used in patients with uh, less advanced chronic kidney disease, but they require monitoring. Uh, for the other agents, the human-based agents, uh, it's really about monitoring the uh, creatinine uh, in particular as you use GLP-1 receptor agonists. The concern is that in patients who have nausea, vomiting, particularly if it happens to be in combination with diarrhea, which I personally have never seen, but it, it does happen, uh, that those kinds of patients can get acute on chronic uh, renal insufficiency. But in general, I do think these agents uh, are underused in the setting of uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, even dialysis, uh, because they do provide meaningful benefits for cardiovascular endpoints, um, and uh, that is the leading cause of death in patients with chronic kidney disease. So when should you use a GLP-1 receptor agonist and when should you use an SGLT2 inhibitor? So this is a, a sort of meta-analysis provided in the British Medical Journal earlier this year, uh, looking at SGLT2 inhibitors on the top row 
a GLP-1 receptor agonist in the middle row, and then terzepatide, a GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist. Uh, everything is in gray for the, or most things are uh, in gray for the terzepatide because we just don't have as many studies. It hasn't been around as long. Uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors uh, provide for great benefits with regards to cardiovascular endpoints, uh, uh, heart failure, and chronic kidney disease in particular, um, and also improvements in health-related quality of life. The one area that doesn't seem to be a strength for the SGLT2 inhibitors is non-fatal stroke. The GLP-1 receptor agonists, on the other hand, great cardiovascular benefits, great improvements in health-related quality of life, uh, not as much benefit for heart failure and kidney disease, but certainly uh, 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 effects in the right direction. Uh, with regards to severe hypoglycemia, there's really no uh, indication for any of these classes in that regard. And then the actual known drug-specific adverse events are, are listed there on the right. And when you look on the far right, you see the body weight changes in kilograms uh, from these various uh, uh, different agents within the GLP-1 receptor agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitor class. And I would just point out that in general, the GLP-1 receptor agonists I mentioned before are the most effective uh, weight loss uh, uh, therapies currently available. And then with regards to the issues that affect adherence and persistence with GLP-1 receptor agonists, in slightly older studies, you know, so this is a, a, a compilation of data from uh, older studies, the reasons for treatment discontinuation were really related to inadequate blood glucose control, uh, gastrointestinal side effects, um, and preference for oral medications of over-injection. These newer agents uh, generally provide for outstanding blood glucose control. It's all about helping people understand that with the once-weekly agents, it takes a while for the drug levels to build up. Uh, so the glycemic benefits may take uh, 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 several weeks uh, to months uh, to be fully expressed as you increase the dose. The gastrointestinal side effects are generally mild to moderate. Um, and with slow titration of the drugs, virtually everybody can tolerate these agents, and we just need to go slow uh, for best results. With these new injection techniques, uh, they really are um, uh, essentially painless, uh, certainly no worse than a mosquito bite, um, and, uh, and something that patients should be able to work through. It's just a matter of uh, whether you have the time and the inclination to do it, and if you don't, Remember that there is the one, the once daily oral semaglutide as an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, and more innovation coming uh, in that space in the near future. I think the major valid reason for uh, treatment discontinuation is high cost, and we'll talk about some ways uh, to mitigate that in a mo in a moment. Higher uh, adherence is associated with people who started at low doses understood that the injection device was easy to use, had a demonstration of it, and in general, weekly versus daily or twice-daily doses. And the biggest uh, driver uh, actually is the weight loss within six months and the A1C reduction. So people who are able to get past the titration, et cetera, et cetera, um, which is the vast majority of patients achieve remarkable A1C reductions and weight loss.
So commercial insurance coverage for GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, has improved, uh, but varies plan by plan. And, you know, this is not an exhaustive list of GLP-1 receptor agonists, and it's not an exhaustive list of, uh, of insurance companies. But um, I just point out that the vast majority of insurance schemes in the United States, and certainly Medicare covers uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists uh, in, uh, in virtually everybody with type 2 diabetes. Now, this data is really disturbing to me. So we spent billions, literally billions of dollars on these cardiovascular outcome trials uh, to demonstrate that GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors uh, provide for reductions in heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular death. But less than 25% of eligible individuals with type 2 diabetes and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease are using either a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitors. As you can see, the trends are improving, but we have a long way to go. So job number one is if you have patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or at very high risk, or you have patients with chronic kidney disease or, uh, or, or heart failure, they should be treated with one of these agents. And we discussed you know, when you might uh, prefer one versus the other. Patients are having problems getting their medications. Um, there are ways of reducing uh, costs. Um, so there are formulary tools that can help you figure out which specific agent is covered uh, by which uh, the patient's particular insurance company. Uh, there are uh, retail uh, pharmacy pricing guides. Um, there's medication access programs. Uh, we have a pharmacist that works in our clinic almost exclusively helping patients figure out how to get uh, uh, access to coupons uh, and, uh, and uh, special exceptions, even in the setting of, uh, of Medicare, uh, which I previously didn't think uh, was possible. Uh, but in any case, there are ways of working the system to improve uh, the ability for patients to afford these medications. So let's get back to Linda. Um, so as you remember, her BMI was 36, her A1C was 7.7. She does have chronic kidney disease, and there's some concern about persistence and adherence and maybe, you know, how much she's really bought into her type 2 diabetes management program. With an A1C of 7.7, she needs at least a 0.7% lowering of, of A1C. You know, she arguably might benefit from a bit more. Um, it would be great to figure out how often she's taking the medication that she's uh, taking and why, you know, there's this doubt uh, going on. Um, but, uh, you know, simplifying her regimen uh, might be helpful. Uh, she would benefit from weight reduction, uh, as would we all. She has the possibility of even having uh, a remission of her diabetes with 10 to 15% uh, weight reduction. Um, and again, with regards to adherence, uh, she may uh, uh, benefit from having a simplified uh, regimen. She is at high risk uh, for stroke uh, related to her uh, atrial fibrillation. Uh, she is high risk for vascular disease based on her risk factors and particularly the presence of uh, chronic kidney disease. Um, so I do think those are the most important considerations. Um, the cardiovascular uh, risk and the renal risk. 
So when you start a GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, with high weight loss efficacy, and this would be particularly uh, terzepatide uh, and semaglutide, but uh, basically all the GLP-1 receptor agonists, the recommendations that I provide for pa patients is to eat small servings, a half a cup to a cup in size, to try and eat slowly, and to stop eating when they're no longer hungry. To minimize nausea uh, and uh, reflux, they should probably, you know, they don't have to absolutely avoid alcohol, but be careful uh, in that regard and try to reduce the amount of fat content of their meals uh, and uh, the spicy foods that they consume. The adverse effects of weight loss, independent of the therapy, whether it's nutrition-based uh, drugs or surgery, is a loss of muscle mass fluid and electrolyte deficits, cold intolerance, constipation, and gallbladder uh, events. To mitigate that, it's important that patients get at least one gram per kilogram per day of high-quality protein intake. And some people are now suggesting 1.2 grams per kilogram per day. They should drink plenty of water all through the day, both to help with constipation, uh, but also dehydration. People underestimate how much of their fluid intake actually comes from food. They may need to increase their sodium intake. Um, and in particular, I tend to recommend uh, tomato juice in the morning, um, soups during the day, br you know, broth um, is uh, one recommendation that many people eat. Um, to eat vegetables and other sources of fiber to help with constipation, which is almost 100%, um, uh, uh, you know, almost 100% of people with substantial weight loss are likely to note uh, decrease in stool frequency, not so much discomforting constipation, but a worrisome reduction in bowel uh, habits. They should exercise preferably five days a week or more, and strength training in some ways is probably more important um, than cardiovascular uh, training, uh, particularly in the setting of, uh, of weight loss. And to mitigate the cold intolerance, people just need to take a jacket with them everywhere. It is very common in people who lose weight. Um, the sense of well-being and the enjoyment of food does get better once the rapid weight loss resolves, generally after three to four months. Um, and uh, people do feel uh, better and invigorated uh, uh, once they have re uh, reached a new stable weight. So to summarize, screening and early intervention for type 2 diabetes appears to improve outcomes. So please do screen people based on the guidance provided. Uh, selected GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors have compelling indications for use in those at high risk for cardiovascular disease, heart failure, and chronic kidney disease. And this is independent of A1C or background therapy. GLP-1 receptor agonists are particularly compelling choices if atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or stroke risk in particular is elevated, and if the A1C goals cannot be reached with uh, oral medications as they are the most powerful uh, glucose-lowering uh, drugs, or if greater than 10% weight loss uh, is needed. Not all GLP-1 receptor agonists are the same. Dulaglutide, liraglutide, and semaglutide are the only ones with cardiovascular indications. And the path to successful management involves empathetic, personalized, shared decision-making and support, arrange the assistance of community resources for diabetes self-management education support, uh, 
and do address social determinants of health, uh, it's important that you continuously reassess the goals that patients are pursuing and uh, a focus on adherence and persistence. That ends our discussion for today. I hope you found the activity informative. Please check out the practice aids as they may be useful to you every day. Thank you very much for participating. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ZKJ860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.